I, I feel so in over my head in this room, even dressed up. Like I usually only wear this coat to weddings and funerals, so I don't know if anybody's wanting to get married tonight or let's not go the other route. So I, I, am, I am really just honored, humbled to be here uh, and, and really do feel very in over my head in front of this group of, of brothers and sisters. I feel in over my head at pretty much every area of my life as a pastor. Um, don't tell the church at Brook Hills, but I have no clue what I am doing. <laughs> and I don't say that to be self-effacing. I, I'm like Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3. I'm only a child and I, I don't know how to carry out my duties. And, and I look at our family, my wife and our three kids. We, for years, had tried to tried to, wanted to have children, but the Lord was not providing in the way we had hoped, and we were praying for years, and so he led us on a path of adoption, which I thought probably in my mind at that point was second best, learned really quickly that this is just as best, and he led us to Kazakhstan where we adopted our first son, Caleb, and, and we came home, and about two weeks later, I came home late one night from a meeting at church, and Heather was still awake, and I and she usually goes to bed earlier. And so I said, why are you still awake? She said, you need to sit down. I said, okay. So I sit down on the couch there next to her. And she says, you're not going to believe this, but I'm pregnant. I said, how did that happen? Well, I mean, <laughs> I know how it happened, but how? I mean, we didn't think we were able to have children in this way. And she said, I don't know. And so... So we had been told all throughout this adoption process just not to get our hopes up. Anybody who's been through adoption process knows anything could fall through up until the last minute. So we're just told to guard our hearts at every level. And for whatever reason, we've been not, not been able to, to have children up to this point um, biologically. And so we said, okay, let's just not get our hopes up. We don't know if this is going to carry all the way through. So for the next month, we didn't get our hopes up. Next two months, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine months later, hope's still not up. And I came home late one night from another meeting at church, Heather was awake. She said, I'm not feeling good. I said, okay, we go to sleep. In the middle of the night, she wakes me up. She said, don't get your hopes up. I said, okay. <laughs> she said, I think we need to at least go to the hospital because uh, I'm not feeling very good. So in the middle of the night, it was a cold December night there in Birmingham. It was a bit ironic because on this cold December night in Birmingham, we got to the hospital and they told us they did not have enough rooms for us. <laughs> oh, okay, well... Is there a manger outside, <laughs> stable we could kind of go to? And so they, they stick us in this closet for uh, a few hours. We're sitting in this closet, hook Heather up to a bunch of machines. We're groggily looking at each, at each other. And about, about two or three hours later, they come in, they check Heather's signs. They say, we need to get you in a room. You're going to have a, a baby today. And that's when Heather and I's eyes locked, and we decided it was time to get our hopes up. And so they moved us into this room. Uh, just a little bit about me. I don't do very well in hospitals. I get queasy. I'm getting queasy now at the thought of a hospital. It's not good for me as a pastor. Now, Heather knew this. And so she told me a couple of weeks before this that she was praying for me and how I was going to do in this whole hospital thing, which was a bit of a shot at my pride because my wife is, is concerned not as much about her health or our baby's health, but my health in this process. And so freshly wounded from that. We're, we're getting things settled there in the room and the, the nurse tells Heather that the doctor who's going to deliver our baby actually lets the dad help deliver the baby if, if he would like to. 
My wife starts laughing. Ah, ha, ha. My husband would never do that. Shot number two at the pride. And I decided this was my moment. This was my time to step it up. And so it was one of those times where words start coming out of your mouth before you can stop them. And I just blurted out, well, I'll help deliver the baby. And she looked at me and she said, you will? I said, well, of course. Who wouldn't want to deliver a baby? So the nurse said, I'll get things ready. They start talking about how this is going to work. I turn around and I think, what in the world have I done? I'm not just standing in this room and I'm about to deliver a child. So I, need, I decided I needed to go up come up with a game plan. And this is the game plan I came up with. I decided I was going to look at this like it was a mission trip. Okay. Follow with me here for a second. When you go into another country, you do things you don't normally do. You eat things you don't normally eat. You drink things you don't normally drink. So when you're in Rome, you do what the Romans do. When you're in the hospital, you do what doctors do and they deliver babies. So besides I have a doctorate, (laughs) granted it's in preaching and theology, but what's the matter? That's all the same in the end. So I decided this is another country and we're on a mission trip. And, and so it came time. Uh, the doctor walks in. He straps a gown on me, mask on me, gloves on me. and gets in my face for about 60 seconds, uses all this medical jargon that I don't understand. He said, do you understand? I said, yes, sir. And so he said, you just do what I say. I said, okay. I'm standing behind him. When it comes time, he said, all right, reach down. Just put your right hand over your left hand. It was like Peyton Manning. I got two nurses flanking me. You right here. You right here. Here we go. Let's do this. And all of a sudden, out pops this little head and time stands still. And this child that we prayed for for years, I pull out and place on my wife's lap as our son from Kazakhstan is in the waiting room beside. God is always sovereign, always in control, even when we don't understand. And then, yes, we just got back from China a few months ago with our newest member of our family, a little girl from China. So I look at, I look at my family and I look at the church God's entrusted me to pastor in. I want, I want my life to count. So we live in a world, 6.8 billion people, most liberal estimate would put the world at about one-third Christian, which in many contexts is more of a social or political identification as a Christian, not actually necessarily followers of Jesus. But even if we assumed all of those people were actually followers of Jesus, that would still leave over four and a half billion people at this moment in the world who are on a road that leads to an eternal hell. Over four and a half billion people. That's spiritual need. Add on top of that physical need, the reality that today, 26,000 or so children have died of hunger or preventable disease. 26,000. I look at my three kids, 26,000 of them today because they have no food or basic medicine. We live in a world of urgent spiritual and physical need. And what I'd like to put before you tonight and tomorrow morning is that we do not have time in this room to waste our lives. We do not have time to play games with our lives and in the church. 
We do not have time to waste them on a nice, comfortable Christian spin on the American dream. We have a master who demands radical sacrifice and a mission that warrants radical urgency. So let me show it to you in a passage of scripture. Mark chapter 10. I want to read a story about the gospel and the rich. When I use that title, the gospel and the rich, I'm not just referring to select people who have an inordinate amount of money. I'm referring to just about all Americans. Recently, I wrote a a foreword for a revised edition of When Helping Hurts, How to Help the Poor Without Hurting Them, Yourself, and Them in the Process by two economics professors at Covenant College, Steve Corbett, Brian Fickert. Great book. And they write at the very beginning of that book, the Bible's teaching should cut to the heart of all North American Christians. By any measure, we are the richest people ever to walk on planet Earth. We are. We all are. The reality is we have food and water and shelter and transportation and opportunities for advanced education. We're incredibly wealthy. All all of us are. So... So how does the gospel transform the way we, re, we, we view and use riches? And that's what I want, I want to show you. What I'm going to try to do, and we're going to go pretty quickly, but tonight and tomorrow morning, through 10 truths that just spring from this text that inform how the gospel transforms our view of riches. So let me read the story, and then we'll dive right in. Mark chapter 10, verse 17 says, As Jesus was setting out on his journey... A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, the man went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. We'll pause there. We'll pick up the rest of the story some tomorrow. Truth number one. Jesus called to salvation demands radical surrendering. And I don't want to overuse that word radical. I'm not trying to plug a book or anything, but but it's true. Jesus' call to salvation demands radical surrender. This man comes up to Jesus asking how to be saved. He's asking about eternal life, entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says to him, go sell all you have and give it to the poor and you have eternal life. Not, well, just raise your hand and repeat these words after me and you will have eternal life. If only Jesus had the evangelism methods that we have developed today, he could have gotten this guy in. (laughs) 
This has to be the classic example of letting the big fish get away. Think all this guy could do for the kingdom, all of his wealth, all the good things that he could do for the kingdom. We've got to have him in. But Jesus looks at him and he says, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Jesus does things like this all the time in the gospels. John chapter six, large crowds are following him. He turns around and he says to them, you, if you're going to follow after me, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's weird. <laughs> and here you've got these disciples. Things are going great. You can almost imagine them rolling their eyes thinking, we're never going to get on the list of fastest growing movements if you keep telling people to eat you. This doesn't work. And it didn't work. All the crowds left. You look in, in Luke chapter 14. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must hate his father, mother, brother, sister, wife, and children. How's that for an opening line? Imagine following an obscure religious teacher, him turning around to you and saying, if you're going to come after me, you must hate your mom and dad, your wife, and your kids. He just lost most of us at hello. Next statement he makes. If you're going to come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Now, we hear those words, and for, for good reason. We have reverence and respect for the cross. We got to put ourselves in the shoes of first century hearers, though. When they hear, take up your cross, they hear, take up an instrument of torture, humiliation, brutal death, bloody death for the vilest of criminals. Imagine following an obscure religious teacher, him turning around to you and saying, if you're going to follow me, you must pick up your electric chair and follow me. That's just plain weird, creepy. As if that is not enough, you get to the very end of that passage, he just turns around and he says, if you're going to come after me, you must give up everything you have. So there it is. Give up everything you have, pick up an instrument of torture, hate your mom and dad, wife and kids. That's a lot different than admit, believe, confess, and pray a prayer. You say, well, I don't know if, if people are ready for that kind of high calling to Christ. I mean, isn't that for more mature Christians? This was the introduction to Christ in the New Testament. This is what he is calling people to. So when we see him say these things in Mark chapter 10, this is not a surprise for us. Jesus is saying, give up everything you've got. Now you listen, you hear the good, this, this rich young man coming up to Jesus and saying, good teacher, what must I do? Follow this. This is a man who is willing to have Jesus as a teacher to respect, but not as a Lord to obey. And it's the same error that many professing Christians are making today all over the church. Mark this down. Jesus never intended to be a respectable teacher in your life. Jesus always intends to be the absolute Lord over your life. He is not some poor puny savior who's just begging for us to accept him into our hearts. He is a sovereign Lord and King who is worthy of every single one of our total abandonment and adoration. And yet we shy away from this. Jesus' call to salvation demands radical surrender, which begs the question of each of our lives. Is he Lord over where you have decided to live? Is he Lord over what you have decided to drive? Is he Lord over every single decision you make financially? Is he Lord over every single lifestyle decision? We have, brothers and sisters, sacrificed the right to determine the direction of our lives. He is Lord over these things. He is not just one financial advisor in the midst of the sea of financial advisors. He is king over everything. 
So will we do what Jesus calls us to do even when it goes completely against the grain of this culture? Will we do what Jesus has called us to do even when it goes totally against the grain of the church of which we are accustomed to being around? Are we willing to obey Jesus no matter what he says? His call to salvation demands radical surrender. That is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. That is not something to grow into. That is, that is the point where Christianity begins. You are Lord. Second truth, Jesus' call to salvation involves radical commands. It involves, his call to salvation involves radical commands. So in verse 21, one verse, you got five commands. Go, sell, give everything you have, come, follow me. It's loaded with commands. Almost every word in that first initial call to this man is filled with commands. Now, there are two common errors that are associated with this passage. Sometimes, on one hand, people try to universalize this passage and say, well, this means that every follower of Jesus is supposed to sell everything they have and give it all to the poor, which we know that's not the case. We know that's not the case in the rest of the New Testament. Even in these disciples' lives, though they sacrificed much, we find out later they still had some possessions, boat, they still had some homes to live in. They had different things. So we know this is not universal. So we cannot universalize this passage. At the same time, we cannot minimize this passage. If this passage teaches us anything, it does teach us that Jesus does call some people to sell everything they have and give it to the poor. Which begs the question, am I under this? One writer said this, that Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions, gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would have issued that command. <laughs> so are you comforted that this is not universal? Radical commands. Now, people take this passage and they say, well, what Jesus really meant was that this man must be willing to give up everything he has. Well, that sounds nice. The only problem is that's not what the Bible says. If Jesus had meant that, he would probably have said, you must be willing. Instead, he said, go, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come, follow me. But we have this dangerous tendency to take passages like this in the Bible. We take the words of Jesus and we say, well, what Jesus really meant was, and this is where we face a very dangerous temptation to subtly redefine Christianity according to our preferences, our desires, our comforts, what works our lives. We begin to take the Jesus of the Bible and begin to twist him into a Jesus that we are a little more comfortable with. A Jesus doesn't, who doesn't mind materialism. A Jesus is, who's okay with us looking to the things of this world for our safety and our security. A Jesus who would never call us to dangerous extremes, and for that matter, a Jesus who wants us to avoid danger altogether. The only problem here is, and in the process of twisting his words, we are taking Jesus himself and we are twisting him into our image so that he looks like us. We're twisting the Jesus of the Bible into a nice middle-class American Jesus who looks like us and thinks like us and acts like us and talks like us. And here's the real danger. 
Now, when we gather together in our churches and we sing our songs and we lift up our hands to Jesus, the reality is we are not worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. We are singing and lifting up our hands to ourselves. And we are deceived into thinking we're worshiping Jesus in the process. That's dangerous. Jesus' called to salvation involves radical commands. When Jesus speaks to us, he does not give us options to consider. He gives us commands to obey. We are, we are his. We don't have the option of considering. I remember when we walked, have walked through many of these truths in the context of the church that I pastor, I remember, I remember sitting down one day with a very wealthy doctor in our faith family, and he wanted to meet with me. He sat down right across the office from me. He said, Pastor, I think you're crazy for saying some of the things you're saying. I said, okay, yes, sir. And he said, but you're only saying what Jesus is saying. And so he said, I've come to the conclusion that I, it's not really about whether or not I trust you. It's a matter of whether or not I trust Jesus. And he began to, with tears in his eyes, explain how the Lord was changing his heart and turning his lifestyle upside down and selling his house and selling three of his four cars, keeping the one that was the cheapest to keep. And how, and this was, this was a couple of years ago, this conversation with this man. I, I got word from him the other day. I, I, I don't have time to go into the whole story, but this man's life is being multiplied for the glory of Christ among the nations in ways he never could have imagined. And it started when he said, I'm going to trust Jesus when he speaks to me, even when it goes against what culture and even what some of my affluent Christian neighbors would tell me is what I should do. When Jesus speaks, he does not give options to consider. He gives commands to obey. Jesus' call to salvation involves radical commands. Third truth, Jesus' call to salvation includes radical grace. So, oh, his, this call includes radical grace. So that verse goes, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. That, that can sound cold, like Jesus is going for the jugular, and it seems hard for us. But the beauty of this passage is what the Bible says right before this. When it says in verse 21, Jesus looking at this man loved him and said these things to, us, to, to him. So Jesus does not give this man this ultimatum because he doesn't care, because he wants to make this man's life hard and miserable in this world and take away all the good things that this world offers. Instead, Jesus says these things to this man, because he loves them. Jesus loves rich people enough to tell them the truth. This is all motivated by grace and mercy. Let me read to you just one other parallel passage. Luke chapter 12, verse 32, where Jesus says something very similar, but listen to how it's couched. Follow this. Jesus says to his disciples, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart be also. So he says, sell your possessions. Sell them. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. So this is not just give excess. This is sacrifice your stuff. This is a hard command. But right before it, Jesus says, fear not, little flock. 
for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Oh, what a wonderful promise. Before Jesus tells these disciples to sell their stuff and give to the poor, he says, you have, you have a, a shepherd who cares for you. You're a little flock. You're sheep. He's your shepherd. He loves you. He will provide for you. So he's in the, he, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure. Look at all the imagery here. God is a shepherd who protects us. He's a father who provides for us. I think about my children, these three precious children that God has entrusted to my care and my delight in them, how much I enjoy them. One night, not long ago, we were getting the kids ready for bed and there was a a doorbell. The doorbell rang and Caleb uh, our oldest from Kazakhstan had just recently got, just, just gotten out of the bath and he hadn't gotten his clothes on. He said, I'll go get at the door. I said, no, you don't get at the door. You, you don't have any clothes on. And he said, okay. And he kind of smiled. I said, buddy, you stay right here. Daddy's going to go get the door. And so he smiled. I said, buddy, right here. And so I go, I get the door, I open it up, and it is uh, two Mormon girls at the door who have come to share a false gospel. And so I am... I'm, I'm looking, and, then I, and I'm trying to think. We got so much stuff going on in the house. It's not conducive to invite in at this point. And, and so I'm trying to think, what's a good like, one-liner, like a good zinger just to say, get your false gospel out of here and in a kind, compassionate, Christ-like way. How do I say that? <laughs> so that's what's going through my mind as, I'm, as, they're, as, they're, as they're talking, give me this feel. And then all of a sudden, while I'm trying to think of this, all of a sudden they pause in the middle of talking and their eyes get big, and their mouths drop. And I realize what has happened. I don't even have to turn around, but I do turn around. And there is my son with nothing on, dancing around in circles. And, and so here, my son mooned the Mormon girls. Like, that's, that's, I could have never thought of anything that good. I, I think about that, I, my son, not just that moment, but the, my children, how much I delight in them. Do you realize this, brother or sister? We're sons and daughters of God, our Father. When he says these things to us, he says them out of love to us. Not because he wants to ruin us and make us miserable, because he's a Father who will provide us. Provide us with what? Listen to this. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Oh, what a... What a beautiful picture. It's Matthew chapter 25. Come, those of you who are blessed by my Father, take the inheritance, the kingdom that's prepared for you since the creation of the world. We'll talk about it more a little more tomorrow morning, but just let it soak in. You have a shepherd who protects you, a father who provides for you, and a king who is ready to give you a kingdom. Jesus' call to salvation involves radical grace and love for us. When it causes radical surrender, it is out of the overflow of radical love. Fourth truth, and this is, yeah, fourth truth flowing from that. We must see the gospel, not guilt, as the primary motivation for giving to the poor. We must see the gospel, not guilt, as the primary motivation for giving to the poor. This is the, this is the primary point of Mark chapter 10. When, when Jesus says how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, do we hear that? 
it is difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Those words should just shake our being in this room. It's hard to get to heaven from North America today. It's hard to get to heaven when you're accustomed to staying at the Broadmoor like we are together over these days. It's hard to get to heaven. It's hard for those who have wealth to get to heaven. Like just let it shake you for a second. And it makes the whole point. The disciples are amazed at this, which we'll talk about a little bit in the morning. Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And it's at this point where preachers have gone off on uh, telling a story about a, a very narrow gate that leads into the city of Jerusalem that you had to take stuff off and if you had a camel, it would have to kind of squeeze through to get through this and it's called the eye of the needle. The only problem with that is it's not true. It just ruins so many sermon illustrations like the truth. And so the, the reality is that, that, that whole legend didn't come about till the ninth, some even say the 19th century. And it misses the whole point. A camel does not walk through an eye of a needle, will not walk through the eye of a needle. It's impossible for it to happen. And that's the whole point of the passage. It is not a natural reaction to let go of all the things you have in this world and follow Jesus. That involves not a natural reaction, but supernatural regeneration. Something has to happen in our hearts in order to follow Jesus like this. This is not something we can manufacture. The goal is not to feel so guilty about how much we have that we say, well, how much can we give to try to, try to counter that and make ourselves feel better when we go to bed at night? And this is the whole point of the gospel. What we need is not ultimately to give more. What we need is ultimately new hearts, transformed hearts that actually believe that Jesus is better than all the stuff in this world put together. And when hearts see him like that, then we will gladly let go of the things of this world. That's the whole point of Matthew chapter 13. Man walking in a field. And he stumbles upon treasure. And he stumbles upon this treasure. Nobody else knows it's there. He knows it's there. And he knows this is worth more than everything else he has put together. And so what does he do? He covers it up and he goes. And the text says, this man sells everything he has. Not just sells it. With gladness, he sells everything he has. Gladness. He's liquidating all of his assets, getting rid of everything, and he's happy about it. He's happy. People come up to him saying, you're crazy. What are you doing? Get rid of all this stuff. He says, I'm going to buy that field over there. So you're going to buy that field? You're crazy. He looks back at him. He smiles. He says, I've got a hunch. He smiles. Why? Because inside he knows he has found something that is worth losing everything for. Ladies and gentlemen, we have found in Christ someone who is worth losing everything for. 
He is that good. He is so much better than all the things, all the stuff of this world put together. And so we certainly hold loosely to all of this and we let go of it with gladness, gladness, happiness. Why? Because we found in Christ a treasure who is worth it. We believe he's better. And until that is the conviction of our hearts, then it will be a constant fight to try to give and let go and sacrifice. But when we realize that Jesus is better, then we realize the gospel, not guilt, is what drives our giving. This is, this is the essence of the gospel. Our Savior is wealthy. Throne in glory at the Father's right hand. And he gladly humbled himself. Committed the ultimate act of condescension and came to us. And he was hated by us and persecuted by us. Ultimately crucified by us. 2 Corinthians 8 says, he became poor so that we might become rich. Because he did this, we are reconciled to God. We have satisfaction in God, forgiven of our sins. And when that is a reality in your heart, then it just makes sense to do the same. And so, the primary question I would leave us with tonight, the beginning of this conference as we prepare to put our heads down on our pillows, the primary question I would leave us with is, does Jesus have your heart? More than your spouse? more than your children, more than your money, your business, your investments, your house, your thing, all the things that you look to for safety and security and satisfaction in this world, more than all of those things put together does Jesus have your heart? Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you for sending your son to become poor so that we might become rich. We are rich people in this room not ultimately because of any physical resources we have, but because we have you, Lord Jesus. So help us to see your worth. We pray that in these days, you would penetrate the deepest places of our hearts and our minds, that you would cleanse that you would renew and refresh and, oh Lord, that 
hundreds of people would walk away from the next few days with their affections fixed on you. And that the, the overflow of that would be indeed radical generosity. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.